in the darkest worlds that ever were. The only thing that brings light are stories. Those stories are kept in one place. The tiny bookcase. Hello, explorers of the Sacred Library. You're listening to The Tiny Bookcase. I'm Ben. And I'm Nico, and you know what we're about. Stories. Stories and interesting people. Well, we've certainly got one of those today. We're joined today by a novelist who started their life in Egypt, grew up in Qatar, moved to Canada as a teenager, and now lives in the United States. As a journalist, he covered the war on terror, reporting from Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay, and other locations around the world. His first novel, American War, was included by the BBC in their list of 100 novels that shaped our world, and it also won a fistful of awards. We would like to welcome Omar El Akkad. Hi, how are you? Pretty damn good. Good to be talking to you. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. Not, not a problem at all. Um, how has this uh, this awful and strange and odd year been for you um, on the west coast of America? Am I correct? Yeah, yeah. We're out in the Pacific Northwest. We're in uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, and so we've had the sort of full American COVID experience with all of the, um, you know, government incompetence, uh, as well as that whole sort of very individualistic, like, I don't want to put on my mask kind of kind of thing um but then on top of that we've had some like very sort of specifically pacific northwest kind of issues we had a giant uh fire come through so we were on evacuation notice um for forest fires and then a few weeks ago we had ice storms and the light the all the power lines came down on our road so we couldn't get out it's just been like i basically have i have tsunami uh, volcano and earthquake on my sort of apocalypse bingo card that are yet unchecked. But uh, <laughs> other than that, we've had we've had the spectrum of crises, so it's been uh, a nightmare. What's it like living in a Michael Bay movie? I have to ask. Well, at least Michael Bay movies like they're they're interesting. This has been <laughs> this has been just like horrible and boring at the same time. You know, like oh, you're sitting there dreadful. and there's like giant forest fires, but also you're just sitting there, so kind of. I, I, yeah, there's no car chases. I think is the is the main difference. Everything can be improved by car chases. That's for damn sure. This needs to not become a theme in our podcast, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as I said, as I said, we're about uh, we're about stories here, so uh, I think we should crack on and uh, read each other some stories and talk about them. Well, go on then. You're first this week, Ben, oh. and your prompt is. Contraption. You uh, may have to bear with me a little bit, actually, because there's, there's something a bit odd about the way that I've written this one, um, which we can possibly talk about <laughs> afterwards. Um, what a uh, warning! I know. Contraption. The top section of the page has seen some wear and tear. Though the header no longer exists, it is possible to ascertain from other markers that the document matches the pledge found in federal records. The typed text reads, In account with Werner and Werner Logistics. 
The bond for lot C3 is hereby pledged to J. Robertson of Louisville, Kentucky, and T. Boone of same. The exact particulars of the 600 acre lot are discernible if damaged, dated 1831. Jordan swiped the sweat from his beard and looked out over the gorge. He could see how he'd do it. The bridge would span the gap. With the lumber they could harvest from the land clearance, he would fashion a trestle bridge to support the weight of the locomotive. If the railroad ever got that far, when it got that far. Five miles of the theoretical track, that was all they'd been able to afford for their $1,000. Five miles that no one else wanted to gamble on. Thomas had stumped up the majority of the money, of course, from his bounty hunting days, whilst Jordan brought his expertise. He knew the costs of labour would be crippling, especially given the danger pay. But with that labour, Jordan knew he could turn theoretical track into reality. When they did that, those five miles would be invaluable to any railroad company looking to head west through the Appalachians. Jordan's mouth watered to think of how much west there was and how hungry railway men could be. Even then, he had his doubts about how they intended to furnish themselves with the rest of the money to complete the project, regardless of Thomas's skill. Their camp was furnished with all of the tools they would require. They had decided to buy good quality equipment once to save needing to buy replacements during the remote project. As such, their pack horses, now corralled or in use, had sure stepped their heavy burdens up with them into the mountains. The gorge, central to their plot, was a ragged wide slash at the edge of the camp. Jordan stood at the lip of it and waited as the noon sun hammered at the brim of his hat. Below him, the small river flashed through gaps in the sparse canopy of trees. He knew that down there, somewhere, was the beginning of the switchback trail, which he had seen Thomas take that morning. Jordan settled his hand on the butt of his gun and then jerked forwards. Coming through the trees on the far side of the gorge was Thomas, who hollered the moment he was visible. The shout sprang over the gorge and Jordan returned it with a yodel of his own whilst waving his hat in the air. The sudden jubilation surprised him. It seemed as though his normally strong self-belief was carrying a heavy burden through the tension of this venture. Jordan watched Thomas begin to unpack the tools and gear he would need and knew that the time was near. He walked over to his contraption and double-checked it. The base of the initial rope was hard-knotted through a series of heavy iron stakes that he had set and rigged this morning. The rest of the thick rope had been fed through the mechanism and left to coil in the payload bucket. At the tip of the rope, a heavy weight had been affixed. The payload bucket itself weighted at the end of the cantilever-bound arm. That arm sat under tension, and Jordan set about turning the handle in order to give it maximum force. The arm settled back, a clunk at a time, into the ratcheted restraining brace. He knew when the time came, he would knock the pin out and that they'd see exactly how clever they'd been. Thomas shouted again from the other side of the gorge. Jordan squinted through the bright sun to see that he had set up the mechanism and looped iron stakes on his side as well. Jordan nodded. Although he knew Thomas was unlikely to be able to see it, and picked up the mallet. He stepped back and double-checked his work before giving out three short hoots. Then he struck. The mallet slapped the restraining pin clear of the machine and the arm snapped up, releasing all of the tension Jordan had placed on it. Jordan watched the payload sail through the sky, catapulted with tremendous force. The weighted tip dragged the arcing line of rope behind it and plunged towards the opposite side. Thomas shouted in triumph as it landed and Jordan watched as the man scrambled to it and made it fast before looping it through the iron stakes and tying it back to itself. His heart full of hope, Jordan cranked the winch mechanism on his side of the gorge 
the heavy handle rotated under his horse, and Jordan felt the mechanism bite and drag the rope. It took a lot of turns, but in short order, the loop's knot tied by Thomas had travelled back across the gorge to Jordan. He seized it and unfastened it before retying it in a fashion that could pass through the loops easily. Jordan gave the handle a few more turns to be sure of the success. Suspended over the gorge, their conveyor ropes rotated neatly. As the day wore on, Jordan wound the handle and passed bucket loads of tools, along with materials, over to Thomas. They took care not to overburden the ropes, but Jordan was unable to stop himself savouring the success. With the contraption active, they would shave days of travel off the construction time. His mind raced forwards to their future plans and logistics. Then the gun went off. This paper is intact. It appears to be mass-produced and the cheap ink has partially faded. Natural weathering has discoloured it, but the identifying pictures are still clear. The top image depicts a heavy-set man wearing a raccoon-skin cap. Three smaller images are set beneath it. The criminals are represented as scarred and dirty vagabonds. The text reads, Wanted, dead or alive, the Clint Muldoon gang, $2,000 reward, last seen in the Cumberland Gap. Conservative dating places the poster between 1829 and 1831. Jordan flinched. His hand reached for his pistol as he twisted. Then he heard the shout. You draw that iron, boy, and we'll cut you down like we was the Lord. Turning slowly, Jordan could see that the large man who had shouted had levelled his revolver. His hand was steady. Jordan raised his own hands and saw three more men step out of the woods by the camp. You ain't no lawman, that's for sure, continued Clint. What are you doing up here? Jordan felt his self-belief crumble in the face of the Old West. These wild men represented everything he sought to lay his railroad over. I'm an engineer. An engine? You don't look like one. No, I build things. I'm here to build a bridge for the railroad. The big man paused. We don't want no railroad up here. Rails bring big money, and big money brings bigger trouble. The man squinted at the conveyor ropes, which still rotated. The speed of it was ferocious, and Jordan paled to think what that meant. What's that? said Clint. I use it to transport materials to the other side of the gorge. Look, I, I don't want any trouble, but I have purchased this stretch of land in the form of a bond with Werner and Werner. You got papers? In my saddlebags, yes, there. The man kicked over the pack which leaned against Jordan's tent. All of his writing and drawing materials spilled out. He watched one of his ink pots glug its contents, dyeing some of the papers and the earth beneath it. Well, look at this, boys. Looks like he's already heard of us. The big man stood, holding his own wanted poster. I picked that up in Louisville. Had no intention of collecting. The lie came easy, and he began to wonder how much time he had before the gang decided to end him. He thought about all the last times he'd had without realising it. The last time riding a horse. The last time waking up in the morning. The last time drinking whiskey by the fire. Jim, keep your gun on him. Let's see what else he's got. The rest of the men began rifling through the gear and kit of the camp, exclaiming whenever they found something they couldn't reckon the use of. Behind him, Jordan heard the sounds of heavy breathing and the scrabble of boots on rock. Jordan winced at what was to come. Fill your hands, you sons of bitches! 
Thomas Boone, his shirt sweated through from his exertion, leapt from the conveyor ropes he had used to traverse the gorge. Boone cleared leather with his twin six-shooters, whilst Jordan fumbled for his own iron. The man named Jim fired his rifle, and Jordan felt the bullet tear a white-hot ridge into his left arm. Boone, guns outstretched, fired a reply which sent up a gout of blood from Jim's skull. He continued firing, pummeling the Muldoon gang with lead. They replied in turn, with Clint emptying his gun by fanning the hammer. Jordan felt the splash of blood as Boone's chest exploded from the multiple impacts. His partner stumbled back and raised his guns again, only for them to click empty. Thomas pitched backwards as his legs failed him, and in a moment, he had disappeared over the edge. Jordan winced at the pain in his arm and gasped as the adrenaline kicked through his body. His shaking hand waved his still cold gun over the camp. The Muldoons lay as they had fallen, not one of them twitched or groaned. This bill of sale is still crisp, pressed from years in an archive. The stamps upon it indicate that completion was achieved under the auspices of the Kentucky Federal System. The text reads, The sum of $400,000 has been paid to J. Robertson of Louisville, Kentucky, for the acquisition of the Boone Bridge, in perpetuity by the Eastern Pacific Railroad Company. The document is dated 1852. I really enjoyed that. That was fantastic. I'm glad you liked it. Do you see what I mean about it being a bit odd? <laughs> I I really liked that as a narrative device. The switch back to so to for a little bit of clarity, was it? Is this a thing that's based in truth? Is there an actual landmark, or is it no. all fictitious? No, no. That's that's all fictitious. Yeah. Okay, well, it definitely gave me the, the idea that this was a real thing, a real place, and that so, you had slightly dramatised an event, but it all being made up is even more impressive. Yeah, when I say it's an odd thing, it's, it's, I say it's more of an odd thing to perform, I think, because you have to read out sections that are quite clearly different uh, typographically on the page, Yeah, but not necessarily different when you read it out, so I try to sort of change the tone and stuff. But... Um, it's uh, I, I, it was me actually trying my hand at something called historiographic metafiction, which is something that I believe you use in your novel American War, Omar. Uh, not very well, but yes, I, that is, um, it, it lives in that in that space. I think, I mean, what I loved about this was anything that sort of even touches on sort of American frontier story territory, um, usually. I'm not a fan of just on principle. There's there's certain things about it, the sort of narrative tropes and um, mm. even the dialogue style. But man, I love the thinginess of it. Like the things that, you know, the rope coiling and payload buckets, the iron stakes that um, it's, it's just, that gets me every time. And there's a couple of lines in there that are just um, like the ink pot glugging its contents. Um, it's just really well done. Um, I, that's uh, that means a lot. That's I, I, uh, I appreciate that. I, I think I know what you mean as well about the about the way that um, dialogue works in it. Um, I mean, m my accents are pretty atrocious when compared to Nico's. Um, but you know, I it felt like I was cheating a little bit by giving him a a twangy uh, mountain man voice. Um, the you know the the big um, wanted man. Of the Mondoon gang, um, but it's just so tempting, isn't it? Like as soon as you get into that space, you're like, "Yeah, I, I have to do this, right?" Like somebody's got to say "boy" at some point. Like it's, it's got. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. 
the entire idea of the Western, especially the spaghetti Western, which you and I are both fans of, Ben. Yes, very it, it's much. all built on archetypes. And it's so unbelievably difficult to write something in that setting that doesn't have those characters because they're familiar to us. And it means that even if you're not trying to, you start writing that dialogue and your brain fills with, nah, look what we got here, boy, immediately. Mm. And you, you can't help it. It just, I, I don't know if anyone spoke like that, but it's just how we know that world. It's no different to the pirate voice or, I don't or, know, you or know, vampires a, or sort of posh British villain. Also, is a is a bit yeah. of a short, sort of like a cheat code, isn't it? Um, uh, especially in short fiction, though, archetypes just are a useful tool because they kind of tell a bit of the story that you don't have the word count to tell. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, that was already a fairly a fairly fat story for what we do on the on this podcast, and I'm not sure. I mean, I, I you know, it's sort of difficult like looking back at it, but in a way, it's this one of the straightest told stories that I've done so far this season. There's very little switchback. Um, you know, there's very little uh, twists and turns, uh, which are typically a hallmark of a good short story, really. So. I'm not 100% sure on it, but um, I, I particularly enjoyed writing using the um, the three uh, like uh, sort of metafiction documents or whatever as the beats of the story, um, because you kind of it, the first one sets it up, the second one is introduced at the at the moment of like uh, surprise violence, um, and the the third one gives you a, gives you a, a, a conclusion. And you know you were talking about using words and in terms of like word counts and stuff. That last section sums up it completes for me anyway completes the story. And it's I mean it's not a lot of words. It's about maybe fifty sixty words. But um, it lets you fill in the the rest yeah, yourself, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it's a pretty efficient way to end a story, um, especially when you're already looking over the word count. How did you find writing a novel with? I, I actually don't know whether whether I've done this in the same style as you, but how did you find including bits of like sort of uh, fictitious but sort of seemingly real documents in your in your novel? Was that was that an obvious choice or was it something that came later on? No, it was, um, I never intended it to be part of the novel to begin with. I um, because the the novel takes place uh, about fifty years from now, and uh, it's a bit of a kitchen sink book. Like it's got. It's got a lot of things going on at once, and not all of them very well done. I needed to keep track of all of the sort of moving parts, um, all of the historical events that had that had sort of happened between now and then. And uh, because I, you know, my day job at the time was as a journalist, I, I was very familiar with the sort of paperwork of the bureaucracy, you know. Um, freedom of information requests, uh, letters from governors, you know, that sort of thing. So I started writing this stuff down to, to just to keep track of the world. And it was only much later in the project that I, that I realized if I inserted them in, that I would get an element of, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of texture that I otherwise mm -hmm. couldn't do. So it started out as a crutch for me personally, just to keep track of everything that was going on. And it was, it was only about halfway through the project that I started playing around with, with inserting them into the text and it became a very different book after that. Mm, fascinating. And uh, you're, you're being very modest about uh, American war, but it, it did do extremely well. 
um, critically. I, I think it holds a record. It, it lost 13 awards, which I, I don't know anyone. <laughs> at 13 different occasions, some very smart people decided that it was not good enough to win, which um, really does something to you at a personal level. Oh, no. It really, like, uh, gets, at the, gets at the soul. Uh, but thank you. That's very kind. Well, I'm... Um... You know, we've had my story, and uh, I'm very keen to hear yours. So, if you're willing, let's uh, let's have you go next. Cruel trick you've just played, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, really, really get sad about your own work. Now, unleash it. <laughs> Show me your work. <laughs> I well, when I start reading, it's going to be a communal sadness, I think. So, brace yourselves. Um, <laughs> I'm buckling. The bad news, yeah, the bad news is that I, I wrote this just before deadline, and the worst news is that I write everything just before the deadline. Um, it's a bit bloated, but we will we'll get through it together. On my way to cut God's tongue, I pass a long, shuffling line of laborers. Men, mostly. The younger ones nurse hangovers and bar-fight bruises. Denton-colored stains on their shirts, maps of imaginary islands. It is a rule at the entropy mill that the laborers must all be dressed in reasonably presentable attire, but I've never heard of anyone turned away on account of how they look. The older men tend to take too much care with their appearance. There's something grotesque about watching a stooped retiree in his best Sunday suit, his hair dyed and gelled to shining plead for a day's wage. They look so much older than they are, these men. The years gorge on them like yeast in a sugar bath. I glance at them as I walk past. I wonder how many of them have children. I wonder how many of them are mean. The line stretches for miles and miles and miles. It always does. It used to be a mega mall back before the crash. The largest one in the country, I'm told. Though that was years before my time. Even now, you can still see the phantom outline on the sides of some of the buildings, the places where the lettering was, the names of all those big box stores, movie theaters, and parking garages, this congealed mass of commerce the size of a small city. Now the whole thing houses the entropy mill, five million square feet of government-subsidized employment. Every day, thousands of people come to this place to churn out numbers for minimum wage, to make the slop on which God's tongue feasts. By the time I get to the front entrance, the makeup of the line has changed. There are more women near the front. They sit on folding chairs draped in winter coats and blankets. The only way to make sure you get a spot is to show up the night before and wait till morning. A few of the people in line give me dirty looks as I walk past, and one of them points at my laptop satchel and yells, No bags! But it's not until I'm right at the entrance that a young man steps out in front of me and grabs me by the shoulder. You just gonna walk in, he says? Back of the line, buddy. I shake my head. I'm not here for that, I say. The hell you ain't. Back of the line. I know that look he's got. I know it from memory. And I know what's going to happen next, but I try to step around him anyway. There's no point appealing to reason. You can't rid a man of the violence that lives in the chasm between the life he hoped for and the one he got. I've never been any good at taking a punch, 
Glass jaw, they call it. I drop to the ground, a dribble of pinkish spit leaking out my mouth, that familiar mineral taste. He's got strong hands. I don't understand how men get strong hands working at the entropy mill. In my periphery, I see a couple of security guards come running over. Tech support, I say. I'm, I'm here on a maintenance call. Both guards ignore me. Instead, they grab the young man who punched me and start dragging him towards the street. He puts up a pretty good fight, arguing he's been waiting here eight hours, and is the guy who cut in line that should be booted. It doesn't look like he's going to back down until one of the guards pulls out his phone and tries to take the man's picture. That's when he turns and runs. No one wants to end up on the blacklist. The guards don't give chase. They turn and walk back, and on the way, one of them helps me up. I show her my ID. You knew? she asks. Yeah, I say. First call. She shakes her head. Never come through the front gate, she says. That's just for them. She leads me inside, and after she checks my name against the maintenance manifest, she has me walk through the metal detector and into the massive central rotunda. I've seen pictures of it, but never like this. The workers haven't been let in yet, and the place has about it an almost apocalyptic emptiness. All the workstations pristine and untouched. The wires and electrodes and number pads arranged neatly at each desk. The only sound is the faint wheeze of the air conditioners and the squeak of our shoes against the polished floor. In an hour or two, the rooms will fill with the noise and heat of thousands. But for now, the entropy mill is cold. We walk through the rotunda and down one of the hallways, past the workrooms. The walls are all glass, and I can guess at some of the jobs that go on inside. One room is lined with tall bookshelves. I imagine this is where the word counting happens. In another room, I see headphones on the tables. It must be one of the music stations. That was my father's favorite job. I used to pray he'd get assigned the music station. There's entropy mills in all the big cities now, but this was the first. The original make-work project in the years after the crash wiped out a third of all the blue-collar jobs in the country. Every day, three and a half million people come to the mills to churn out numbers. It's the easiest work. Anyone can do it. You don't need a degree or references or previous experience. Depending on the day, you might be assigned to the biometrics unit and have a machine dream up numbers based on the topography of your fingerprints or the blood vessels running across your retina. Another day, you might be told to swallow a small capsule that sits in your stomach and sends back a real-time count of the bacteria in your gut. Another day, you might be told to put on an electrode helmet and listen to Mozart, as all the while the electrodes measure the changes in activity across the right side of the frontal lobe, the places the music sets on fire. And from these changes generates a stream of digits. Most of the time, you just sit there, let the wires pull the numbers right out of you, a strange, corrupted dreaming. In an endless stream, all these billions of digits the workers generate are funneled down to the box in the basement, down to God's tongue. And from these numbers, God's tongue forms its own secret language and speaks unpredictable things. As stipulated in the Great Recovery Act, 
Any company that uses random numbers must purchase them from an entropy mill. Academics, cryptographers, drug makers, anyone whose business demands mathematical uncertainty. Every bank in the country is a customer, as is every casino. There's a video game studio whose vast, procedurally generated universe feeds on these numbers. Somewhere in the math department at a university upstate, there's a server that queries God's tongue at the rate of two or three billion digits an hour, part of a quest to find the new largest prime. In reality, the numbers that come out of the entropy mill are not completely random. There is a determinism to it, no matter how difficult to decipher. In reality, a gram of cesium would do a better job. But a gram of cesium won't feed three and a half million families. I've wanted for so long to see it. My father spent 31 years in this place, showed up hungover and barfight bruised, left in his Sunday suit and his hair gel-shined. 31 years and he never saw it. I followed the guard to the restricted area, past a set of vault-thick doors and into the electrical and mechanical rooms. We take a service elevator down to the basement. The doors open and there it is, a modular cube of black disk drive holders and winking green and red diodes. It's a little bigger than the simulator we used in training, the room a little warmer, the smell of ozone a little thicker in the air. I feel a kind of distant nausea settle in. It's just a gaggle of rectangular servers. I wanted it to be something more than this. I wanted for a fight. I remove my laptop from my satchel and kneel by one of the input ports. I plug my machine in. I enter the password, my password. They're going to know it was me, but it doesn't matter. The guard stands nearby, bored, checking her phone. So what's wrong with it anyway, she asks. Yesterday it spit out a string of 19 fives in a row, I say. That triggered a service call. So it's broken? No, it's not broken, I say. It's not anything. I skip past the diagnostic menu. I find the code repository, the thing you're taught never to touch unless all hell breaks loose. I upload my changes, the new dialect I am to make God's tongue learn. I imagine there'd be some failsafe, some impenetrable wall. But it's easy. It takes no time at all. Ninety-six trillion, I say. The guard looks up from her phone. What? Ninety-six trillion, give or take. That's how many numbers my father fed this thing. She looks at me, uncertain. She doesn't know. She'll piece it together later when it's too late. Did you have a good childhood, I ask her? Uh, sure, I guess. That's good. I unplug my laptop. That matters. We leave the server room. When we return to the rotunda, the workers are just starting to stream in. They take their seats and begin their busy work, their invisible shedding. I think about this time tomorrow, when God's tongue adopts my language and turns mute, when all it can utter is an endless string of zeros, and all the industries reliant upon it come to a grinding halt. I imagine the sound it'll make. A choking. A long time ago on one of his good days, my father told me about a workstation they used to have at the mill. 
Two people at a time were told to sit and talk to one another about anything at all. A microphone listened in. It was never quite clear what it was listening for. Some of the workers guessed the machine counted phonemes or syllables or perhaps the length of pauses between words. It seemed at first a good addition to the rounds. All the workers had to do was talk to one another, which they mostly did anyway. But soon it became clear that when expected to converse, many of the men became awkward and self-conscious, and too often ended up getting into arguments that sometimes turned violent. You can't do that to a man, my father said. Rub it in like that. I didn't understand what he meant back then, but I think I do now. It's important to do work of which you can be proud. Sorry, guys, that ran a bit long. I apologize. Uh, Absolutely no need for an apology whatsoever. That was bloody brilliant. I, I was completely enthralled by that. Um, stunning Thank story. You. That's really, very and, kind of you. And, uh, and you know, really well written as well. The, 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 your, the cadence of your, of your performance really suited the story. Yeah, I felt. Wonderfully delivered. Yeah. Um, Thank I just, you. I don't even know where to start. That was that was such a yeah. that was such a strong showing. Um, I was just going to say I'm I'm always in awe of stories that get the, the the physics and metaphysics of a thing right, because I so often veer into the world where there are no no sort of workable physics, and then I make stuff up. Um, and it, even as I'm reading it now, I'm like, okay, nineteen fives in a row. That's one over ten to the nineteen. That's a ten with nineteen zeros. Like, and, and it's just breaks down in my head um but none of that is here nor there that's just me being insecure i apologize <laughs> well it it, uh, it completely held up for me i thought it was a marvelous bit of um i would possibly say i mean i don't even know what what box to put it in but speculative fiction probably suits because it's quite a broad one um but uh, there was also like an element of um like cyberpunk to it with the way that there's there's, mm. a, there's a sort of there is a sort of hacker going in to uh, screw up the system from you know by getting through a, but then you also you also sort of subvert that by saying that there is no firewall. You know there is nothing for them to fight against. There's there's this uh, as you say like entropy and um, there's like an element of ennui to it as well. Um, he is there just to slow down a system that's monolithic. Um, oh yeah, that I, that that really stuck with me. Like as soon as you said entropy entropy mill. I was like, oh, I'm in. I'm definitely in. That's that's a cool idea. I'm having a weird issue where I don't feel qualified to to critique that. <laughs> I know you're you're more of a writer than I am, Ben. You know, it's come up already that I'm I'm the voice guy and you're the the words guy, and that then is, you cross that over is, a bit. But... <laughs> that is unfair. You are you are extremely well qualified to talk about stories because that's but what it's, we do. Well, yeah, I suppose they're this far in, I should be should grow a pair and. Say something about this. Um, yeah, I just a lot like Ben. I just was absolutely desperate to know more the entire time. I, I never, and not not in a, oh, it wasn't enough, but I I just I was never satiated with law. I just wanted, <laughs> I wanted to explore this horrible dystopic world. I wanted to know what caused this collapse. I, it's unbelievably evocative, really lovely. Yeah, incredibly well realised. And you, you you did explore the central 
um, the central conceit really quite well. I thought like he took it, he took it uh, at least one or two past where my initial thoughts went with it. Um, at least, you know, it, it was, I, I really felt like it was very well examined, but also because a lot of the times, you know, you read fiction and uh, there's good ideas and you can applaud it and, and all that. But I was actually just enthralled by the writing as well. There were a few really early bits that, that hooked me and they were the, this idea of the, the phantom outlines where the signs used to be on the mall and the other commercial buildings. And that really grabbed me because it, it, it sort of immediately gets your mind worrying about what, what world could this possibly be? Um, some kind of like, you know, very real feeling collapse. Because um, I think we've all, well, I know I've definitely seen, you know, walk down a high street in England and seen empty shops. Yeah. With, you know, you could see where their signs used to be bolted onto the wall and there's a discoloration of the brick behind it, you know, this kind of thing. Um that was really well observed. And this idea of uh, well-dressed me like men in suits looking for work as well is something that was very, like, really just sort of grabbed me by the emotional gut and dragged me forwards into the story. Um, oh, Thank stunning you. work. Yeah, really, really Thank well done. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We have, um, there's about an hour and a half east of where we live. There's a mountain, Mount Hood. And um, near the top of Mount Hood, there's a, there's a resort, a sort of ski lodge type place called um, Timberline, Timberline Lodge. And if, uh, if you've ever seen The Shining, um, mm. all the exterior shots of, uh, I think it's called the Overlook Motel or whatever, the, the, the place where, um, what's his name, loses his mind. Yeah, uh, all the exterior good. shots are, um, are of the Timberline Lodge. It's this beautiful, beautiful place up on the mountain. And uh, that was, a, I believe, a make-work project, uh, I think, sort of after the Great Depression. They were, they were sort of paying people to, to do anything. They'd pay people to dig holes in the morning, and then they'd pay, pay other people to fill the holes back in at night. Mm. Um, they'd pay folks to sort of shoo the pigeons away in the parks and that kind of thing. And I, I, I was thinking recently about what the... You know, when the next great crash comes and all the Uber and Lyft workers and all the contract folks immediately are thrown under the bus, what the next make work project would look like. And that's sort of how I ended up in this weird, weird space with the entropy mill. Man. I've got to say, your mind works in an amazing fashon. I really like hearing you, hearing it how you describe it. Barely works that. at all, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if that's yours barely working, then mine's fucked. I can tell you that. Uh, <laughs> Do you know how to turn it on? I think mine's off. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I will stop complimenting you momentarily, but I do just have to. <laughs> there is just one, there was one line that I was that when you when you read it out, I I, I thought to myself, if I was reading this in a you know in a, in a collection or in a book i would stop just for a moment just to to let that sink in because it felt really weighty to me and it was the it was the line about how you can't rid a man of the violence that grows when he's yeah, got the chasm yeah. the chasm between the life he wanted and the life he got that was yeah that was just an absolute sucker punch of a line it really really floored me so very well very well Thank done you so much i really appreciate it uh well so we'll we'll uh, continue this uh, this uh, story train with um, with Nico's story. Nah, <laughs> <laughs> it can be it can be really daunting to follow some follow people sometimes. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm quite glad I went first. So there's <laughs> a there's an old English saying. I believe it dates back to uh, 
early Elizabethan times is fuck that. <laughs> I don't know if don't know if you've heard that one before. <laughs> oh, I went to a British high school. I don't remember. I don't remember hearing that one. That's new to me. I think uh, I think it's Marlowe who's been credited with that one. Uh... <laughs> oh, he would be. Of course, he would be the spy master himself. I best tell a story, hadn't I? Go on then. Blast this confounded contraption! Evan recoiled as the spanner, hurled in anger, rebounded from the machine and whizzed smartly through his parting. It landed with a clatter at the back of his lab its impact ring cutting through the endless hum of Dr. Evan Baumstrasse's latest invention. In his time at the Department of Military Innovation, Evan had been responsible for some serious breakthroughs. In his very first month, he had been responsible for building the world's first nuclear-class tricycle. Finding soldiers small enough to ride it comfortably had been something of a difficulty, Although finding jockeys looking for a quick buck in the off-season had alleviated a lot of that pressure. Ultimately, the bean counters had squashed his first great breakthrough. The lack of stability on three wheels to them was a concern. And yet, had they factored the cost-saving of having three wheels compared to four? <laughs> Amateurs. <laughs> his second masterstroke, the grenade repinner, had tested extremely well among the generals. Imagine, if you will, a soldier pulls the pin from his grenade, most commonly done, according to his research, with the teeth, and then realises that this is no time to be throwing explosives. Well, simply unhook the repinner from your belt, slide tab A into slot B, and presto, that grenade is ready for the next big tug. Problems had, of course, arisen when it was discovered during a live fire exercise, that it requires two hands to unhook the mechanism from the belt. <laughs> His department had been forced to pay for the funerals of those young men in the training area, and considering it was a department of one, Evan really felt the pinch. He had decided, on that day, that he wouldn't deploy his next machine until he'd really nailed it. This had been an extremely long process thus far. Running a hand through his matted red hair, Evan went to retrieve the spanner. The neat little printed label that read Baumstrauss DMI was badly scuffed. Great. That's another hour gone from the day. Removing and replacing that delicate little nuance. It wasn't that Evan was a perfectionist. It was simply that everything in life comes down to maths. Humans are just sums if you really think about it. Everything could be crushed down into a quantifiable metric and then processed in a way that meant you could predict the way that any given entity would think or react to any other mathematically applied circumstance. There was, of course, outlying data, as all graphs must allow for. This was how Evan had convinced himself that he hadn't quite managed to find a girlfriend yet, though other scholars may suggest he hadn't correctly applied poor sanitization and generally being a bit of a cock to himself when performing the required trigonometry. It was with this outline data in mind that Evan had set about his masterpiece. Scores of notepads had been filled with the numerical ravings of a madman. Values of X and Y swam in a soupy miasma of theorems so complex they'd make Pythagoras sweat. This violent alphabetty spaghetti of ideas had eventually filtered its way into a design. At first, he could not comprehend it. It was jagged lines and wheels. It was 
only through the filter of his genius that the rich brewed coffee of imagination had run, leaving a steaming cup of... Good grief, I have no clue what this thing is. Building the device had been relatively easy. There was the usual conundrum of importing rare and elusive metals and chemical components from countries outside of his own. This, as a military scientist, was of course problematic. But one didn't pop next door for a cup of sugar if you lived next door to an aggressive Rottweiler whose wife happened to be a particularly egregious nest of wasps. You could, however, offer small trades to those who had particularly large amounts of fission materials or supercomputer chips. He had become aware recently that his tricycle was going down a storm in North Korea, though there was something of a toy shortage and overabundance of warheads that forged a match made in heaven. It was through these back-alley trades, under-the-table deals and late-night drunken Skype calls that Evan found himself staring, for the first time, at an enormous wall of dials that was his contraption. He had tried many random combinations on the dials at first. A perfect six-minute egg had popped into the outtray. The next time, a very precise anatomical drawing of a kiwi, a freshly peeled kiwi, and the memoirs of a kiwi, uh, the bird, fruit, and peoples hopefully in that order. Months of random spinning and button pressing had slowly filled his space with a veritable dragon's horde of gubbins. String of every flavour hung from the walls. Maps of cave systems under the sea lined his desks and, and, taking pride of place, a photograph of the artist formerly known as Prince wearing a dressing gown and eating a baklava. Eventually, Evan had gone back to his maths and was now finalising the ultimate combination. The amount of computations required were immense, but diligently by pencil he had worked all of them out. Now, his new label affixed to the spanner, and those final digits tweaked, Evan prepared himself for the ultimate test. He knew this machine was capable of much, but was mathematically programmed for one purpose, and with all parts in alignment, it would be his crowning achievement. With a satisfying click, the last dial went into its place, and he pressed lightly against the button that made the beast purr. There was a series of low rumblings, and something that resembled a dossier began to slide from the opening at the machine's feet. Gingerly, Evan leant in and seized the article, flipping it to read the bold text emblazoned on its cover. The ultimate guide to effective, lasting peace in our time. How to end war in three easy steps, and keep it off. Evan's mouth fell agape. After all of this effort, this was what he got. A certifiably provable solution to world conflict. He'd set the whole bloody thing backwards. There was no other possible explanation. He'd made the rod for his own back, his own petard by which to be hoisted, unceremoniously, for the amusement of no one but himself and the spiders hanging lackadaisically in the room's high corners. With a deranged bellow, he cast the book at the invention, then, using his experiences with the monstrosity, spun the dials so they would begin pumping out highly volatile fuel. With a thick marker, in his best Russian, Evan scrawled the words, We did this, before sticking the piece of paper to the outside of his office door. A deep sigh, once back inside, told him the room was filling up, the tang of the acrid gas, the nod he needed. With a last cursory glance at his creation, Evan withdrew a lighter from his pocket, 
flicked it open and struck. A surprisingly simple sum that he was sure would equal war. That was so fucking good. <laughs> well followed, sir. Well followed. <laughs> I'm uh, glad you guys liked it. It was a delightful... Um... Uh, yeah, change, change, change in pace and change in tone. That was just, that was so funny, man. I think that's probably your funniest one yet. I think. Oh, I'm glad you liked yeah, it. Uh, man. It just the, the wildness of it as it just jumped around. Really, <laughs> really, it, it was it was like you were prancing in words. Oh wow! Uh, um, I thought it was. Yeah, I thought I thoroughly enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan. I could have listened to that for a lot longer. I think it was with, with uh, yeah, like there's that kind of that brand of comedy writing that's really hard to get right, which is the, I'm going to throw a lot of things at you type of, type of right. And there's, mm. there's yeah. always like the, the, the risk of just sounding like you're doing mad libs. Like you're just picking <laughs> like a noun, verb, adjective sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, but then you got to that Kiwi line and I was like, no, that's not mad libs. That's, that's a really good fucking, that's a really good, well thought out line. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> I really like that. The Kiwi line was excellent and definitely got a big chuckle from me. But the, the biggest chuckle of the whole thing was probably you saying alphabetty spaghetti, which <laughs> just tells you exactly what level my humor's at, I think. Um, but uh, it, it, it's, it's a good point, though, I'm at, because the, um, I, I cannot write in the style that Nick just wrote in. It, it does just come off as I'm just making up nonsense and it doesn't read well. It doesn't, and it's not, and it's never funny. Um, so I'm I'm really very much in awe of you being able to just uh, put together something so so clean and and really really funny consistently. It's, it's we we have been over a few times quite how chaotic I am in in terms of thought process. So it's it's actually quite relaxing for me to get that out on paper <laughs> now and again. <laughs> That's the sort of manic. Oh, a thought. Another thought. I'll just put these thoughts down and grab that third one. Oh, and a thought and a fourth. That's just <laughs> just how I live. Oh, uh, well, it, I think it works very well. It's and it's definitely one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast together. I think because I just cannot. Like, I try. Sometimes I try. I start writing stuff and it's and it's supposed to be funny and it turns serious, and it, it just does it automatically. <laughs> uh, and like. Um, I, I always feel like every time you read a story that's like this or, you know, in, in very much in your voice, uh, that I just, yeah, I'm really excited by it. And it's, it's fun to, as, as you said, Omar, I could, we could listen to a lot more of that, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. For sure. I think one of the things that like living in America does to you is it slowly obliterates your awareness of the rest of the world because it's such a loud country. And so when we got, when you got to that alphabetic spaghetti line, there was a part of me that chuckled, but there was a small part of me that was like, surely that's just the product they have in England, right? That's their version of SpaghettiOs or something? You can get that. <laughs> get that at no. the store, right? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, uh, just ejected from Nick's mind at 100 miles an hour, I think. I must have heard it somewhere. That can't just exist in my brain. Or oh, now no, it's in all of yours. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so um, the the... The big tug line as well, I thought was very funny. <laughs> but that's because I'm that's just because I'm a pervert, I think. I think my my favourite joke in the whole thing, as as I was writing it, was the uh, the realization that you needed two hands to unclip the yeah. thing that puts your grenade back <laughs> <Yeah>. together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, re really well done. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Thank you. 
Uh, I'm glad we've taken the mood. It's gone all over the place this time, isn't it? (laughs) Such a beautiful reading from Omar to bring it really, really down and deep. I'm glad I could absolutely annihilate that with (laughs) with some silliness. (laughs) By pouring some alphabetic spaghetti over it. (laughs) Well, um, we're, we're pretty excited to ask you some questions, Omar, if you're up for it. Yeah, let's do this. Well, okay, first one, nice and easy. What are you reading at the moment? Um, I just finished this beautiful little book called uh, Slipping by an Egyptian author named uh, Mohammed Khair. Um, so I, I, one of the weird things about being a professional writer is that people just sort of get a hold of your address, and I'm not 100% sure how. Um, <laughs> but the Center for Translation, Center for Translation Arts, which is this place out in, in San Francisco, I think, Anyway, they mail me a copy of this thing out of the blue. I have no idea how they even heard of me. Um, and it's just this, this lucid dream of a book. Um, the, the plot is clearly an afterthought. I can't even really tell you what it's about. Um, but it just really, it's a series of vignettes, and they're kind of like semi-surreal. Um, and it captures that sort of ennui of post-Arab spring Egypt, where everybody's just sort of like, had their hopes up for a while, and then everything was dashed. Um, just beautifully written, beautifully translated from the original Arabic. Um, and yeah, re- really moved me. What about you guys? Uh, I actually just recently read um, a... Well, the most recent thing I read was actually a comic book by uh, Garth Ennis called Dear Becky. Uh, I, had a, I had a lot of fun reading it. It was, um, it was a fun way to spend an afternoon. Um, it's very like... Um, I don't know if you've seen... The, there's, an, there's actually an Amazon Prime TV show about it. Um, his, his, it's called The Boys. Um, oh, okay, okay, yeah. It, it's like a um, very, very hyper-violent um, superheroes are off the chain, and they're, there's a cor- there's a corporation angle to it, all this kind of stuff. And this is his. He actually wrote that comic book way back when, and then this this one called Dear Becky is his most recent um, sort of uh, entry into that series. And it was interesting seeing someone writing something because his, his early work is very aggressive and and very um uh the attitude is very much fuck you to everything mm. and everyone um and then he in this one he it appears to have softened and it's a lot a lot of it's about love and how you know how he wants the world to be a better place and all this kind of stuff and what happened in between those two things was that he had kids got married and had kids um oh. and so it was it was sort of it was sort of an odd reading experience because um, I don't really practice death of the author, so I, I had that running through my head the whole time I was reading it. But it was it was it was still fun though. There were still superheroes kicking the shit out of people though, which was great. I uh, almost shamefully, mine is a comic as well. But I'm uh, guesting another podcast soon uh, to talk about the movie Kickass. So I just reread the comic Kickass, which uh, it's not as good as I remember it being in my late teens. But still fun. So remind me of the guy that wrote it. What's his name? It's He's Mark Millar. Mark Millar. And, and he... art by John Romita Jr., who's one of my favourite comic book artists. Ah, he's, he's a classic um, Judge Dredd artist. Is that right? Uh, no I actually don't know if Romita Jr.'s done any Dredd stuff. I know he's oh. done loads and loads of Marvel stuff. Uh, maybe, that, uh, maybe, that's, maybe that's me getting mixed up then. So his, but... his dad was also, he was one of the first draft Marvel artists. And then his son grew up to, to carry it on. So my understanding is that he he um, 
he was very affected by the uh, September 11th attacks. Um, I seem to recall that, and he that his his sort of political and writing outlook changed drastically after that. Oh, Smilar. Yeah. Oh, very possibly. Um, I would, I'm just trying to think, trying to place Kickass when, because I assume it was in the 2000s. The when Kickass came out. Yeah, it would have been 2008 ish. Mm. Well, I mean, it was a well-intentioned question, but we, we answered it by saying we both recently read comic books. Which, uh, oh, that's cool. Which, we're grown-ups. <laughs> we're definitely adults. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I really love uh, reading of all sorts, including comic books. It's just a lot of fun. Speaking um, of reading of all sorts, I'm going to fire on with the next question, I'm afraid. I do that sort of thing. <laughs> um, what would you say is the best book you've ever read? Um, you don't want to narrow it down to fiction or non-fiction, right? Oh, we don't mind. Well, just the, the one that jumped out at you straight away. Oh, my favorite novel, I think, pound for pound, um, is A Death in the Family by James Agee. Um, but that's, I mean, it's, it's a beautifully written book. Um, and you could tell right from the prologue, the legend is that he sat down and wrote this prologue in 90 minutes, and, and it, uh, it sort of, uh, he... He wrote this this book, and it's it's a fictional account of a family who's sort of patriarch. The father dies suddenly, I think, in a car accident, and um, it's about how all the different members of the family sort of react to this. And it's and it's it's beautifully written. It's it's sort of emotionally surgical. Um, but I also read it sort of right after my own father died, so obviously I have a bias, sort yeah. of emotional bias. Um, and it's he he published it. It was published posthumously. He died, and um, it was it was Bloody a draft hell. sitting around somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It was, that's, um, that's, that's intense. Yeah, the, the only reason they, the, I think that the publisher put it out because they wanted to generate some money for for the guy's family, basically, and right. it ended up winning the Pulitzer. Um, it's just a Blimey. beautiful book. Just a really beautiful book. That's my favorite fiction. My favorite nonfiction is um, uh, a bright shining lie by Neil Sheehan. Um, which is an account of how everything went to shit in Vietnam, like all of the things America did wrong and how they, the hubris and just complete clusterfuck they turned that country and its surrounding countries into. Um, Neil Sheehan was a reporter. He was a young reporter in Vietnam, and um, he spent the next two, three decades of his life trying to write this book um, about how it all went wrong, and it almost destroyed him. It almost sort of ruined his, his marriage. It, um, but it's the best piece of journalism I've ever read. It's the most thorough accounting of a modern war that I've ever come across. Did so you, those two stand out. Did you was that was that an inspiration for your uh, initial career choice of journalism? Um, it was yes, it was. Um, I, I sort of it. It's one of those books you come across in fiction. I think the the equivalent for me was something like um, uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison where you just have sort of a conception of what writing is, and then you read a book, and then you suddenly have to change your conception of what writing is. <laughs> and I think a, a Bright Shining Lie did that for me in terms of what journalism is and what it can do. Um, this is also the guy who got the Pentagon Papers. So, he, I mean, he was a tremendous journalist across the board. Um, but it really sort of rearranged my view of... of like if history is wet concrete that you can come along and you can 
stamp your prints in it um, because this book is going to be one of the sort of pillars in terms of an, an, a thorough accounting of what happened in that war. It's going to stand the test of time. So yeah, it did. It made a, it made a huge impression on me. That sounds absolutely stunning. Um, do you, you, the way that you were speaking about um, journalism then, it, it, um, it, it was very powerful. And do you, do you miss it at all now that you're a full-time um, writer and, you know, you, you've create you you know, you've re got another novel coming out fairly soon and stuff. Do you, do you miss the, the days of being all around the world reporting on um, difficult things? Yeah, I, um, I miss a bunch of things about it. Um, I miss seeing how other journalists work. Um, one of the things about journalism, it's, it's not like engineering or medicine. Most of the time you don't get like an official certification or go through, you know, you might go to journalism school, but you don't get sort of a, a bunch of letters after your name. Um, and it's, so journalists have very different styles and I miss just watching that at work, uh, watching different reporters go at stories different ways. I miss the steady paycheck because being a fiction author is financially just ruinous. Uh, some years it's just amazing. And some years you're like, ah, mortgage is going to be tight this year. Um, I'm also married to someone who has a real job, so that's less of a concern for me. She's mm. the grown-up in the family, and I get to run around <laughs> playing boy-author, which is very nice. Uh, mostly I miss when I was invested. Um, you know, I'm one of those journalists. When I was invested, I was really good. And when I wasn't invested, I was awful. I was the mm. worst journalist. Um, so a lot of times, if you're writing a, you know, quarterly earnings stories about Amazon spring results, I, I don't care in the slightest. And I did those really badly. But when it was good, when I was into it, that was... Um, that was special. I missed that quite a bit. Do you have a a, a career highlight of you know the best you know the maybe not the not sort of saying you know how well your work was received, but the most you enjoyed a particular story? Um, yeah. So um, you ever hear of CES, the Consumer Electronics Show? Um, it's uh, vaguely, I think. Yeah. It's this. It's this giant sort of. Um, I don't know how well Circle Jerk translates in, in English <laughs> no, vernacular. We, okay, we, good. We, we, we have those over here. <laughs> Cultured. <laughs> um, I believe it was also Marlowe, wasn't it? Anyway, uh, so... No, no, so... No, that one was Shakespeare. That one was Shakespeare. <laughs> no, no, okay. Yeah. Um, so, so CS, giant industry Circle Jerk. It happens every January in Las Vegas. And all the big tech companies come down there. And all the tech journalists come down there. And the tech companies uh, invite the tech journalists to these awful, gaudy parties at the worst places um, and try to sell them on, like, you know, Microsoft Zune 12 MP3 player, whatever, just horseshit, utter horseshit. And um, I was a tech journalist for a few years when I was working at the Globe and Mail, my old, my old newspaper, and they would send me down every January, and I hated it. I, I really, with a passion, wanted to burn the whole thing to the ground. Um, on top of that, it always coincided with my birthday. And um, <sighs> there's a particular kind of person and a particular kind of like temperament that really enjoys a birthday in Vegas. And, and I am the opposite of that temperament. So anyway, <laughs> uh, one year I just sort of, I gave up on it. We were just getting these stupid press releases about the, you know, iPad 6 or whatever. Um, and I was reading around and I, I, I found out that there is underneath Vegas... Um, there are these giant storm drains, this, this 
you know, miles-long network of sewer systems. And um, I believe it's Clark County, the unincorporated area that Vegas is in, is really, really awful to homeless people. So what developed is that there is a small city of homeless folks living in the storm tunnels underneath the strip. That's crazy. That's awesome. It's, it's, I mean, it's one of those things that's, that's quintessentially American, right? It's, it's, I mean, it's not that something like this couldn't happen everywhere, anywhere else, but it's just the way it happened, you know, underneath the glitziest strip of real estate in the richest country in human history. There's a network of human beings who have to keep their things in shopping carts and leave uh, trails of metal cans connected by string all the way down the storm tunnel because when the flood hits once a year, you want some warning so that you don't drown. So you have time to run out the other end before the water comes down from the mountains. Um, And so I went down there and I talked to these folks and I wrote this short feature about it. I don't know if anybody read it. I don't think it made a difference in the world in any way, but it was, it felt to me like what journalism should do, which is avoid yeah. that PR horse shit up top and, and talk about something else. So that one, that one stands out. Sorry, that was a very rambling answer, but that one. That was, it was, was a great answer. One cool, yeah, one of the coolest stories I've ever heard. So thank you. Uh, do you, um, do you at all admire uh, Hunter S. Thompson? Have you got like a view on that kind of like gonzo journalistic null structure? Yeah, I've gone through the uncanny valley with, with Hunter S. Thompson because, I mean, when you're young, I, I say you, I mean me, but when you're young and you, you read, you know, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas for the first time and you get to that part, I mean, right from the get-go, right? Um, mm. You know, with the drugs or whatever. Um, but, but there's a section in the middle of that book where it's just the editor trying to guess at what, thompson was saying when he was drunk and leaving a voicemail because they didn't have a manuscript they just had a drunken sort of message that he left from a payphone somewhere and you read this and you think this is the coolest shit that's ever happened in the history of the world because you're 17 and this is amazing and definitely you're going to write this way and then you spend three years trying to write this way and producing the most awful horse shit um and then almost to make up for that because your own insecurity kicks in you sort of spend the next few years hating Hunter S. Thompson. Um, uh-huh. And now I'm back on the other end of that valley. I'm back, I'm back up to really liking particularly his political stuff. Um, the stuff he wrote on the campaign trail. The campaign yeah. trail, yeah. It was amazing. He, was, uh, he has an article, you can find it in the archives of ESPN, right after September 11th. When, you know, right after September 11th, everybody was just, in this country, was gunning for war. And he wrote this little column where he predicted everything that would happen next. And he, he got it right. Um, and so I've, I've come to admire that side of him a lot more than the just like, we took a bunch of magic mushroom and pissed on a cop car or whatever, which is still great <laughs> yeah. and I love it, but it's just, uh, I feel like he had more to him. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Excellent. The, um, the, uh, the Rum Diaries also, I feel like, a very different tone. The, the, first, the first thing he put out... Um, that's yeah that's amazing i was i was just thinking um i've actually got a little possibly a recommendation for you i don't know if it if mm-hmm. you know we were just talking about comic books earlier i don't know if you if you've ever read any comic books or you're into them yeah yeah the, very much i mean I'm, I'm not at all educated in the in the area but I, I read them quite often um there's a there's a series called transmetropolitan um written by warren ellis um which has a main character called uh, spider jerusalem and he is 
modeled very heavily off Hunter S. Thompson. Huh. And it there's, you know, sort of 10, 11 volumes of this thing. And it's just um it's it's set in a um a slightly futuristic uh over the top version of America with a, a futuristic Hunter S. Thompson style character journalist just kicking doors in and fucking with the man. Um huh. and it, it sounds like it might be up your street, so it just, just occurred to me, but it, which would check it out and recommend to the people listening as well, Transmetropolitan, Warren Ellis. Very cool. Thank you for that. No right. We've we've got stuck in on Hunter S. Thompson, who, while he may seem stranger than fiction, is in fact a real person. <laughs> but do you have a favorite literary character who isn't a real gonzo journalist? Um there's a couple who stand out. Um do you ever read a Confederacy of Dunces? No, I have. I have not either. So, Confederacy of Dunces is is uh, again another one of those that was published posthumously and won the Pulitzer Prize, um, but was um, it's billed as a comedy. It's billed as a comedy about this guy in New Orleans who bounces from job to job, and is so socially incompetent that just cannot hold down a job and and the ways in which he fails to hold down the jobs are just hilarious um the writing is terrific um but central character in that ignatius g riley um again billed as a comedy he's one of the saddest he has the most profound sadness about him he's he's somebody who just is at odds with the world like the world was clearly not created for him and yet he has to exist in it. And so you get this from the first sentence, like this book is very uproarious and the way it's written is, is very, you know, you, you laugh and then you're like, wait a minute, this is actually profoundly sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's always stuck in my head. He, he, he is one of those characters that um, just doesn't go away for me. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's the first one that comes to mind. It sounds almost uh, like a Bukowski-esque this uh, this idea of like him losing jobs and being socially um, atypical. Yeah, it's it's um, it's less sort of like grungy, I think, than right, okay. it's sort of. Um, he's much more he, he's much more pseudo dignified and very much like concerned with his own correctness and <laughs> and how the rest of the world is absolutely wrong and he's absolutely right and he's going to make it right and that's how he ends up losing his job. A lot of the time, but yeah, it's, it's sort of along along the same lines. Oh, brilliant answer! Um, this next question is basically my favorite one, and it's always fascinating. What is your writing process when you actually come to put together your your novels? Um, so to give you a sense, uh, American War took took about a year to write the first draft, and about a year and a half to rewrite. Uh, after, and a couple of years to research before. So generally speaking, and this is, this is much more true of my shorter stuff, the writing is, is the shortest part of the writing process. Um, I spend a lot of time doing nothing, um, just sitting there and trying to think about the world and, and about the places I want to go. Um, and, and, Eventually, you can sort of feel when a couple of walls break down and you get, you've made a breakthrough. You're sort of like, okay, I can start writing now. 
Um, and then I'll piece together the, the, the first draft, usually sort of uh, front to back, you know, start at the beginning, end at the end sort of thing. Uh, and it's always shit. It's always a horrible first draft. And um, then I just start bashing away at it for months or years. So American War went through 12 drafts. Um, oh. From yeah, yeah. It's my editors have have the patience of saints. It was uh, it was a long, slow process. Correct. Um, but yeah, I'm one of those people who who has my acceleration is horrible, but I have a pretty good top speed. So usually I need about three or four weeks of just focusing on the work before I can start to get into a groove. And once I'm in that place, the um, the writing comes very easily. And the reason the writing comes very easily is because it's very bad. And then I turn around and try to make it good um, on the other side. It's almost like a fundamental aspect of how anyone should approach anything in a way. Like just accept that your first, the important thing is to do the first draft, isn't it? The important thing is to take the first step, etc. Yeah. And can't, yeah. Can't. Yeah. And, and then I mean, it's make it, it puts you in a place where. Uh, oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. No, that, that was literally it. You go ahead. Um, I, I mean, so at one point with American War. Um, I got so angry at it, and it was going so badly, that I deleted the manuscript. Uh, uh, and then I went into the recycle bin, made sure it was gone for good. I was, I was not ang- just angry at the quality of the work, but also at, at having attempted this in the first place. I mean, writing is not a... Um, the process of writing is not something I enjoy. It's very cathartic to be on the other side of writing, to have written, um, but the actual process is... Is just you're constantly just staring at your own incompetence and inadequacy and in sort of these ideas that were diamonds in your head are now coal on the paper and you're trying to sort of make sense of that. Um, so that's that's I think is is the the central hurdle that I kind of wrestle with when when I'm when I'm putting the work together. You have to sort of remind yourself that you may not be any good at this, but you're far worse at everything else. So you got to start, you know, pitch. Put your leg into this particular horse and hope hope it gets you there. <laughs> oh wow, that's uh, that's a stunning answer to that. Uh, sort of oddly oddly hopeful, despite the way that you disparaged your own writing ability repeatedly. <laughs> it was Listen, so... man, if I had Nico's voice or like that kind of ingrained talent, this would this would be a different conversation. But some of us <laughs> some of us don't have that going on, so we just gotta we gotta just I hate to break along. it to all of you. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> correctly in my life at all <laughs> oh come the fuck on guys this is a bit much <laughs> no i i kid of course i'm i am a non-stop thrill ride of pleasures <laughs> oh. right no enough of this fuckery this tomfoolery tom fuckery if you will um <laughs> omar if i were to press you to take a book and adapt it into another medium. Uh, you're not limited to film and TV. This could be into an opera, into a sandwich, into anything you like. What book would you adapt to what medium and why? So a while back, I got, I got an email from these people I'd never heard of um, asking to turn American War into a virtual reality experience. Oh, um, damn. And we had already sold the film rights, which um, if you're not familiar with film rights, they, they purchase everything. They purchase every conceivable sub-right that isn't the book itself. Yeah. Um, 
I've seen situations where the, the film company has tried to purchase the literary rights and you have to explain to them that the reason the book exists is because somebody's already purchased <laughs> the literary rights. Um, so I sell it to the, to the virtual reality people. Um, and even though I suspect it would have been just awful and sort of <laughs> nausea-inducing and I have no idea what they had in mind, that to me stands out as something I would have loved to see. Um, but that's a very self-centered answer to that question. It could be your own. Talking about I said any book. Fine. Absolutely um, fine to be your own. Um, oh, yeah, okay. The, uh... Yeah, I mean, the American War is a virtual reality experience. Sounds like the worst possible thing, and I would love to see it. Like, I would just love to see what they make of that. Um, well, we went to, uh, Ben and I went to a War of the Worlds virtual reality experience, didn't we? Yeah, that was it's stunning. Uh, yeah. Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, specifically. So it had songs. But uh, oh. yeah, I, I'd love to do more books in that way. Just it's really be in it. I haven't experienced this sort of thing in a very long time. So I imagine, like, in my mind, it's like three pixels on the screen and you turn left and then 20 minutes later, the computer catches up and turns left with you. Like, have things improved from I, that point? I, I thought it was going to be like that and it absolutely wasn't. Um, no. it, it, it was incredibly immersive. There's, you know, there's, there's whole sections where you're, you're walking along with, every, with all the get up on, um, you know, all the, all the equipment. And you the can... Ghostbusters backpack and the yeah, it's, Nintendo it's... Power Glove. And... <laughs> but you forget it all pretty much instantly when you... Like there's, a, there's a section where you're walking across um, a bridge that's made up of slats of wood. And I found myself deliberately stepping over the gaps that were a bit too wide, just naturally. Um, mm. it, was, it was incredibly immersive. And I, I suspect being a sort of a fugitive from like a, a climate change crisis slash civil war would would be an amazing uh and also very heartfelt vr experience so i think that's a that's a bloody good answer myself i hope we get to do it one day yeah maybe if you can wrestle the vr rights back off the film company i really should i, I need better lawyers is what i need <laughs> also very cool to have sold the film rights that's excellent yeah, it's, it's a little bit of money, and then if they ever make the film, the day the cameras start rolling, it's called exercising the option, and then I get a ton of money. So from a purely financial perspective, I'm really hoping they start work on this. Yeah. And then it would be nice if they also finished work and made a movie, but mostly if they could just start filming, that would be, <laughs> that would be fantastic. Well, fingers crossed for you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, this, this question's a, a, little, a little odd, and we've been getting um, interesting answers from it. Mixed results. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, the question is, when did you last cry whilst reading? Um, and it's this idea that can a book move you to tears? Um, there's a couple that come to mind, and neither of them are particularly the book um, so much as the context, I guess. Because um, yeah. generally speaking, I'm not... I'm not that kind of reader. Um, I'm, I'm the daydream reader where I sort of, I leave the book for, you know, you're on page 26 and then 30 minutes pass and you realize you're still on page 26 because you've sort of gone off on some tangent that the, the book has sent you um, exploring. Um, the last two times, when I, so American War, the epigraph page has a quote from the Book of Songs, um, which I translated myself because there's no English translation of, of the Book of Songs. The Book of Songs is this um, several hundred years old now, I think 13th century, but I'm, I think I'm wrong on that. Anyway, um, this guy um, 
went around trying to collect all the folk tales and songs and poems in the Arabian Peninsula um, and produced this massive sort of 25-volume collection of, of everything, everything you could think of. And so um, I, the, you, you get these little vignettes, and then at the bottom is his narration and his sort of footnotes on the authenticity and whether this has been changed or, you know, how he thinks this poem came about. Anyway, this was my father's favorite collection. It was, he, he just read and reread those 25 volumes throughout his life. Um, and so when American War became a thing, when I was writing American War, I had no editor, no publisher, no book deal. I wrote it in my spare time. Um, I never expected it to go out into the world. And then we sold it to Knopf. And suddenly it was become, going to become a thing, and I knew immediately I was going to dedicate it to my father. Um, and so I wanted an epigraph from his favorite, from his favorite work, and so I went back home. Uh, this was, you know, his collection was sitting there in the basement of our house, and you go through it, and you kind of, you know, you you come face to face with with everything, right? Like the. I speak English the way I do because my parents put me in an English school, but that means I also lost my Arabic, and my Arabic's really poor, and my father loved Arabic literature, and, you you know, the loss of him and all of that stuff. Anyway, so that yeah. was, just going through that was kind of a, a difficult thing. Um, but one of these days I'm going to translate that collection, uh, and no one's going to buy it, but it will be for my personal, just just to be able to say I did it. So anyway, that was yeah. that was one time that comes to mind. That's absolutely lovely. It's a, it's a really um, odd time around the the death of a loved one. I think for reading in particular, um, I think a lot of the times that I've cried whilst reading have been, in, as you say, in the sort of in the context of what's currently happening in my life. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think it probably is quite difficult to just, um, you know, begin to weep or whatever, um, when everything's going quite well and your imagination, as you say, is, is leaping ahead of you, trying to explore this fun reading experience. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, can, I can definitely, um, definitely sympathise there. So we're about to change the tone completely. Yeah, um, it's all a bit real, isn't it? Uh, uh, Nico's favorite... yeah, so I only have two modes. I, I either parody or just stone cold bummer. So we're gonna we're just gonna go back and forth, and it's gonna be such a weird experience for you. Listening. Well, in that case, I'm gonna hit you with, you know, Ben. Ben's all about those. What's your? How do you write books? Questions because Ben is an actual legitimate human with normal thoughts. I, however, want the weird stuff, and what I'd like to know is one really uninteresting fact about you. Um, I've had some interesting, interesting things happen to me recently, so those don't count. Um, here's one. Do you, uh, you know, uh, dark chocolate, uh, 70%, 80%, blah, blah, blah? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, anything over 70% and I start sneezing uncontrollably. I have no idea why. That is uh, very odd. It's That's... a thing. I, not not like bad chocolate either. We've got, I've done testing with this, like like really thorough testing. We've gone 70, 71, 70, and right oh, around 70% mark. You got really into the percentages. That's amazing. Well, I just wanted to know, because like milk chocolate, I'm fine. And yeah. then like 65%, I'm fine. Um, but but then you, you hit 70, and for some reason, sneezing uncontrollably. I, I... Does it increase sort of sneeze velocity as you go up in percentages or is 70 just that cutoff point where you go just go crazy 
No, because if it did, I would not tell the story because then it would meet my threshold of interesting. And this ah, is just, just dull enough to meet uninteresting. Just, if it did increase and at 99% I was just convulsing, that would be too <laughs> interesting for this, for this story. I mean, 100% is, is just eating cocoa beans, isn't it? That's That's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you just start to see God and uh, time stops oh well that was I, I quite like that one that was good um, so we've we've spoken a lot about um, your career as a as a journalist and also uh, your book American War um, but have you got anything else um, coming out or upcoming um, yeah uh, a couple of minor things and one slightly larger thing um so later this year, uh, there is a new translation of The Arabian Nights um, that's coming out, and uh, it's really thorough. It's the first time, um, the first known modern translation by a woman. Uh, it also includes stories that were previously thought to have been French inventions and so weren't considered sort of canon. And then it, the, the guy who's... who's um, uh, who's shepherding this this translation? Paulo Horta is a researcher. He discovered that they were told to the French by this Syrian storyteller. So now suddenly oh, cool. they're back in, kind of thing. So anyway, I wrote the least important part of this book, which is just the preface. Um, so I'm very very pleased to be uh, a tangential part of that. Uh, but I think it's an incredible project in its own right, regardless of my involvement. Um, a couple of years ago, I was approached by um, this production company that does performances in New York and they do this thing called selected shorts um, and what it is is they ask writers to, to put together short stories and then they perform them in um, in, a, in a theater hall in New York in front of a live audience they get uh, folks like Nico folks who actually have voices that people want to listen to and professional actors and that sort of thing and they get them to read these stories um, so anyway, I was commissioned to do their 35th anniversary, which was supposed to be performed uh, in April, I think, of 2020. Um, oh. And then I, yeah, exactly right. I wrote a story in March of, of 2020, and I was so depressed, I decided to go back to my comedy writing route. So I wrote this incredibly frivolous piece about these commercials that were coming out during the early days of the pandemic that were like, you know, in these difficult times please continue buying our flat screen TVs or, you know, that sort of thing. Mm, yeah. Really frivolous. And then they started pushing, like these jokes were dated about a week after I wrote them. <laughs> and then they kept pushing the date back for performing. This thing. Oh man. So now it's set to be performed in 2022. It's going to be hugely embarrassing. Nobody's going to remember any of these references. And on top of that, they recently told me some of the people who are in this anthology and they're like Nobel laureates and just, I mean, it's, it's just, it's going to be hugely embarrassing. It's worth it. Just that, that alone is worth the price of admission. I feel like to see oh, my, jaded, my like <laughs> dated jokes about the pandemic two years afterwards. So that's coming out. There is an alternative end of that story where everyone immediately starts having Vietnam style flashbacks to the pandemic. <laughs> yes. As soon as your commercials from there, it's happening again. We're in a loop. And then, you ruin these people's lives you monster how could you do this anyway carry on there's about two or three possible outcomes and they're all horrible in different ways because the, the other the other possible outcome is that someone listens to this and you know the voice actor does a good job with it they find it hilarious and then they're like oh this omar Lakhad is really funny let me go pick up his novels and then they go pick up my like super depressing you know just 
so anyway, yes, I've got another one of those super depressing novels coming out. It's called What Strange Paradise, uh, and it comes out in July, and it's a, it's a very short, um, quiet book that is um, a, a, a reinterpretation of Peter Pan as a story of a modern-day child refugee. Um, oh, wow. So that comes out in July. That sounds incredibly gripping. It's it's something. I, it's, again, I'm re- I really hope the comedy work leads people to the super depressing work, and then they hate me forever. That's that's my career arc, I think. <laughs> I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, f- fantastic stuff. Um, and uh, where can people find you? I know I know you've got a, an active Twitter account, um, but uh, where's where's the best place for our listeners to find you apart from buying your books? Um, I'm on Twitter. It's just at Omar Alakat, which is my full name. I don't tweet that often, but I reply to things. So please feel free to reach out. I'm on Instagram and have done nothing to the point where I don't remember my Instagram handle. So that's not <laughs> worth reaching out on. Uh, and Facebook's a nightmare and everybody should leave it. So yeah, Twitter. <laughs> Twitter. There we go then. <laughs> well, um, I've got to say, man, this has been fantastic. I loved your story. I thought it was amazing. And just talking to you has been Uh, really illuminating and gripping so thank you very much for coming on both insightful and lovely it's been great to have you yeah thank you so much thank you all for joining us on this episode of the tiny bookcase make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on your chosen service so that you don't miss out on future episodes you can follow us on twitter at bookcase tiny where you can talk to us directly and even suggest prompts for upcoming stories If you're not a tweeter, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Just search for The Tiny Bookcase. Now, if you want to support the podcast, and we'd really appreciate it if you did, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash The Tiny Bookcase. And then you can be just as special as these story seekers. Do we thank them? I think so. Well, then it's a huge thank you to the legendary Matthew McLaren and the absolutely epic Scott Byrne for their support. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Next week. (laughs) (laughs) Make it slimy. Make it slimy, Nick.